there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you suck at school, or if you think you may want to be an entrepreneur, or both, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has been selected as among the top influencers in Silicon Valley, and he's been awarded an Outstanding Teacher Award at Berkeley's Haas School of Business and Harvard's Business Review listed him as one of the masters of innovation. And my friends, there is so much more. But before I introduce you to the extraordinary serial entrepreneur and educator, Steve Blank, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek into the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. You just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my entrepreneurial espresso lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Steve Blank, whose professional journey has taken him from repairing fighter planes in Thailand during the Vietnam War to Silicon Valley, where he arrived in the late 1970s at the beginning of the boom times when the word startup became both a noun and a verb. After 21 years working on building eight high-tech companies, Steve's entrepreneurial track record had included the equivalent of a World Series Grand Slam home run, several solid base hits, and perhaps most importantly, two strikeouts in which his businesses imploded. Since retiring from running companies, Steve moved into teaching entrepreneurship at the undergrad and the graduate school level at top universities on both coasts, including Stanford, UC Berkeley, Columbia, NYU, and UC San Francisco, and at Imperial College in London. During this time, he pioneered what is known as the startup movement and wrote two super important books about how to build early stage companies, one entitled Four Steps to the Epiphany and the other, The Startup Owner's Manual. By the way, there is a ton more to Steve's incredible career, which you can check out in show notes, as well as all of Steve's coursework, the syllabuses that he's created, and presentations he has made, all of these available to anyone who is interested, and we'll also have a link to them in the show notes for this episode. Steve, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to go, but that intro was exhausting. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, you've got no one to blame but I'm yourself. Ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Terrific. So I was thinking before we really get into how you built your career and became a serial startup entrepreneur, I thought it could be useful for our young listeners, Steve, to learn a little bit about your childhood and in particular something you wrote about as your time as a student, you wrote about when you were in school and you said 
put to a vote, your New York City high school class might have selected you as the least likely to succeed. Why is that? Well, you know, I grew up in uh, what today would have been called the dysfunctional family. And parents, uh, until they got divorced, were only memories I have are them yelling at each other. And uh, when, uh, when I was left alone with my mom, uh, I was, uh, I guess today the word or, or the word then used to be a latchkey kid. I kind of raised myself. I mean, there was always food in the refrigerator, but there wasn't much interaction. And so when I was in school, in hindsight, I was just basically struggling to survive both at home and and had absolutely no focus at school. And so uh, it wasn't until I actually left the college that I realized what, you know, normal parents did or what a normal childhood was. So it was uh, it was kind of like growing up in a war zone. It was pretty traumatic, but only in hindsight. Obviously, when you're in the middle of that, you don't understand what I tell my entrepreneurial students today, by the way, is that for those of you who've grown up in that environment, you do have one advantage that others don't. And it is uh, luckily a pretty good advantage for early stage startups is that you, unlike others, know how to operate in the world of chaos and uncertainty because that is a matter of survival. While other people are distracted by noise and stuff not working and whatever, that's just a normal day at home for you. And so those entrepreneurs who who have grown up in that actually uh, have a better skill set than others dealing with the chaos of, of a startup. That's really interesting. You have also written about and talked about the influence that our environment has in other ways. And you've actually suggested that we as a society tend to gravitate, or I should say as individuals, tend to gravitate towards the careers that we are exposed to in local clusters because we're bound by our class and our culture. And so for our listeners who may not share the beliefs of those around them, whether in their family or at school, whether that's high school or college, how, Steve, can they find their people? Yeah, well, first question is even knowing that there are other people. I grew up in a a lower middle class neighborhood, not ethnically diverse in, in New York City. And, you know, the neighbors were plumbers and carpenters and clerks and, you know, scattering of professionals. But, um, but it was kind of a no notion of an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur in, in that sense was someone who might have owned their own small business. And in, again, in hindsight, it was getting out of that, that milieu, out of that environment to something very different. First, I went to school in Michigan, which we'll talk about. I probably owned the shortest tenure ever as a college student. But then more importantly, uh, I joined the military in the middle of a war and then got exposed to a lot of stuff where thinking on your feet, thinking rapidly and with different people, different environments taught me that I actually had a different interest and different skill sets. But if I was still living in New York City suburb of Queens, I, I probably would still be working in a deli somewhere, or dry cleaners. It, it wasn't until I actually broke out of that kind of environment that that was seen and was natural to me that I discovered that there were others, others more interesting. So it sounds like an important first step maybe is to get exposed, find people who are not the folks that were familiar to you growing up. So if you're at school, find friends, join clubs where you're going to be exposed to more of a diversity of thought and opinions and interests. Yes, and though today you don't need to go join a war or leave town, but you know the internet is uh, just a magic carpet. Uh, you could discover if you're 
interest in science or innovation or entrepreneurship or any specific domain or there's just a million sites or interest groups or or whatever where you can engage no one has to know who you are where you are what color you are what sex you are etc it's an equal opportunity exploration uh, venue though there's huge value in actually dealing with people face to face but if you're you know still at home what a wonderful place to explore the world from such an excellent point so you've already alluded that you had perhaps the shortest tenure of all at Michigan State. You quickly dropped out for various reasons and you ended up hitchhiking. Because I was a crummy student. You were a crummy student. Okay. (laughs) Well, in hindsight, you know, that same issues that I had in high school were still in college. I couldn't focus. I didn't know what I was interested in. And more importantly, I had never done a day of homework in my life because no one ever actually cared to check it. So I had no study habits and more importantly, I had no discipline. And I was actually searching for that at the time. And if, for those of you who are college students, you know discipline in college is probably the antithesis of, of each other, at least your freshman year. And that was the world's worst place for me. But you were curious and you wanted to explore and you decided to go to Miami because it was warm, <laughs> right? And you, you ended up getting a random job at Miami International Airport. And I want our listeners to get this. He was loading racehorses onto cargo planes. And while you discovered you didn't much like the horses, you found that you were super interested in the cargo planes, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I, I never knew I would be interested in planes, but actually we're, most people around the airports who got to hang around were interested in being a pilot. I was actually fascinated by the equipment in the cockpit about how do they know where they're going? How do they see through weather? How do they know how high they were? And started to take home some of those manuals uh, that the repairmen were working on and asked a couple of people, how can I learn how to do this? And they said, well, kid, if you're never going to go to college or trade school, you're going to be spending your life running, loading racehorses on cargo planes. And uh, realized that probably the best place for me to get an education was to join the Air Force. Um, and so I did. You enlisted in the Air Force, and as you've already alluded, it was during the Vietnam War, and you enlisted to learn how to repair electronics. And I thought this was so interesting, Steve, because I think this is a theme that I've at least seen in your life, that you found a scrappy way to figure it out. You couldn't pay for it, so you enlisted. And it was also something important to you to get involved in national service, which has also been a theme in your life. Yeah, I, I would say yes to all. But probably the one I didn't realize for at least a couple of decades is the other reason I joined at least the military rather than finding some trade school is, as I said, I needed some discipline and structure in my life and literally had never had it. I needed to understand what rules and bounds were. And, you know, for those of you who have seen war movies or, or have been in the military, you know that there is a modicum of rules and bounds. And, and it was actually good to, to learn about structure. I think it probably kept me alive much longer than if I would have not been in the military. And to be fair, at least the Air Force had the world's best vocational training classes. Even today, being an educator, I'll look back and say they did a really good job and short period of time if you were engaged and interested in teaching someone a trade. I I was in no danger of becoming an engineer, but I became a pretty good technician in a very short period of time. 
And then when I got overseas in a war zone, discovered I had a set of skills that I didn't even know at the time. The ability to operate in a chaotic environment. <laughs> well, the ability to operate in a chaotic environment, but also equally important, the ability to recognize patterns and, and to do so to ingest a lot of data quickly. And this pattern recognition skill uh, would actually end up later in my life, allowing me to see, you know, through what people call the the fog of, of battle or fog of war, where everybody else sees just noise, you could potentially ascertain a pattern of whether there's a, in my case, as an entrepreneur, whether there's a startup opportunity or what's the next move. Or when I became an educator, this whole lean startup thing was simply recognizing patterns that had existed before and being able to describe them in a, in a way that had just never been described before. And so that all came from actually the first year or two in overseas, just uh, having to rapidly learn things when there were a lot of things being thrown at you, literally and physically. Yeah. What do you think the takeaway lesson is here that our young listeners could apply to their own lives, Steve, if they are at an impasse? Maybe they like what they're studying in school, but they can't figure out how it would translate into a particular job or which job or career. Maybe they don't like what they're studying in school and they can't figure out how to move forward in their lives once they graduate. Yeah, so uh, I, I think I want to go all the way to the top and, and uh, for your listeners, just make sure they understand that this is not a drop out of school talk. This is, in fact, a stay in school. I think I'm the exception that proves the rule, not that I was exceptional. But, you know, I now teach in a couple of universities and, you know, it took me decades to learn what my students learn in a short period of time. Not knowing what you want to do is kind of, you know, not unusual when you are in school when you leave. It's the journey that that's kind of interesting. I wouldn't panic, but I would say that exposing yourself to a whole series of different environments and different pieces of technology or different areas of interest really kind of broadens your opportunities. Because one of the unheralded traits of, of world-class entrepreneurs is that they're curious. You know, people talk about agility and resilience and, and all of those things we could go through, but they don't often mention curiosity. And I have to tell you, being curious about things outside your specific domain is what really generates opportunities. I've seen it in myself, and I've seen it in the best entrepreneurs. So I guess my advice would be, A, stay in school, B, don't panic, and see, broaden your, your focus to, to just past your narrow interest of today. And follow your curiosity. And follow your passion. Absolutely. So I want to fast forward. I want to leave your time in the military and share another random story about how you ended up in Silicon Valley. It was after you finished <laughs> your military service and you got a job working for a broadband network company. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were installing high-speed process control networks, is that right, in steel mills and auto assembly plants? That's that's pretty good. Okay. Uh, and and it was after dropping out of my second college in, in uh, Michigan, I went, went back this time to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor to try to be a double E and realized I didn't want to be an engineer. I actually loved being a, a technician, didn't want to design things. I wanted to fix them. So joined this, uh, in hindsight, my first startup, um, though I didn't recognize the term uh, and, and no one actually described it as that. It had about 40 people installed process control systems. And they sent me out 
or they were going to send me out to a place called San Jose, California, to Ford assembly plant. And they bought me tickets for San Jose, Costa Rica. <laughs> and this is before. This is before Google Maps or the Internet. Yeah. And I said, that doesn't that doesn't feel right. I think it's in the U.S. We had to go out at lunchtime and buy a map of the United <laughs> States and, and literally started looking for San Jose and found it in California, changed the tickets. And me and an engineer go out and get out of the plane. And Sunday night, we you know land in San Francisco. We drive to our hotel. And in Silicon Valley, there's still a newspaper called the San Jose Mercury News. I buy the Sunday paper, and it's bigger than the New York Times. And it must be a, like a half a foot thick. And we go in, and we have to share a room because it's a you know it's a small company. And, and by the way, as we were driving in from the airport, I turn on the car radio, and all of a sudden I hear an ad that says, scientists, engineers, Intel is hiring, blah, blah, blah. And I went, what? Is that a joke? Because you have to understand, in, in Ann Arbor at the time, this is 1978, if there were any ads for scientists, engineers, or technicians, we would all rush and show each other the newspaper because it was a, I mean, it was a research university and, then, you know, we were right next to Detroit, but there might be one or two ads a week, maybe at most, for, for this. And here I was hearing, like, an ad on the on the car and, and, and it was just kind of like, what? Well, we get to the hotel room. And as my engineer friend takes a shower, I turn on the TV and start flipping through the paper. And there's a news section, a couple pages, and arts and leisure and sports, and a couple pages. And then I get to the classifieds, the help wanted. And I still remember to this day, there were 45 pages of ads for scientists, engineers, technicians, etc. And just as my jaw is dropping on the television, comes another ad. For technicians, four-phase systems is hard. And I like I was so astonished, I ran into the bathroom waving the newspaper and grabbing <laughs> grabbing my engineer friend who's draped in a towel to kind of watch this ad. And I remember saying, where are we? Because at the time, no one had ever heard of this place because Silicon Valley didn't sell to consumers. They sold silicon chips to other businesses, and they were the one of the hearts of the defense industry. But if you were mom and pop or even a normal engineer or technician, you had no idea what was going on out here. You might and have so, well been on the moon. On the moon. And so I went to, <laughs> why would I stay in Ann Arbor? And I interviewed and got a job. And this is the test of an entrepreneur. My engineer friend said, oh, yeah, that's nice, and went back home to Ann Arbor and Detroit. And the difference was because he had a family to go back. He had his parents and grandparents and whatever. And there was no way he was going to abandon them and, and just give it up and leave. And for me, I had nothing. And so here was this shining pile of opportunity. And I had no connections, at least no connections. I was just willing to walk away from. And so that was a major step in my life. Absolutely. And you got thrown a curveball basically on day one. <laughs> you applied so, for this job right at a tech firm. You got hired. You quit your job in Michigan. You packed up your car. You moved across the country. And what happened? Yeah, I get, you know, typical, you know, first day you pull into the parking lot, go into the HR department and show them my offer letter, go, where do I start work? And, and they said, Oh, we've been trying to call you. Now, remember, this is way before cell phones. So I said, well, I've been on the road driving here. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, 
the person who hired you wasn't authorized to hire you. There's no job for you. We fired him. And I said, what? <laughs> no job for me. I just quit. I got $200 in my pocket. My entire life is in the trunk of my car. And you, I have an offer letter here. Oh, no, this offer went. So we went back and forth. I said, well, is there any job here? They said, well, they're not looking for, and this was, I got a job as a lab technician in a training department. And they said, well, they're actually desperately looking for training instructors. But, you know, I said, I'm a training instructor. <laughs> Were you? I still, I, still, I still remember the woman looking at me like squinty eyed. I said, no, 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 I used to teach, you know, other airmen in the military how to use equipment. Kind of, sort of, but my entire training was like the guy next to me, you know, on the next bench over. I wasn't a training instructor, but I certainly could spin a yarn or or something. And, and she, like, felt sorry for me, I guess, and said, well, why don't you talk to the head of the program? And I ended up uh, interviewing with somebody, a guy, I still remember his name, Ray Van Order, who was head of this program. And part of it was a, a, a developed, this complicated system for the U.S. Army called Guardrail, and the company was called ESL. And they were doing fine on the system, but their training that they had to deliver was a mess. They had six weeks to deliver a 10-week training course, and they barely had started, fired the head of the training department. And the guy looked at me and said, well, what can you do? And I said, blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, what the hell? You're... And, and, and I remember saying, and, and I think what clinched the deal is, and I'll do it. I'll become a training instructor at my current lab technician salary that you hired me at. And I think that might have done it because I got hired. I got, literally got promoted before I even started. I now became a training instructor. And I had six weeks to develop a 10-week course on three 30-foot vans of electronics and six airplanes. It was a intelligence gathering direction finding system. This company turned out to be a halfway house between my military career and a Silicon Valley career. And and it, from lots of travails, I knocked it out of the park. It turned out I was pretty good at assimilating a lot of data, figuring out what was important. And because I was teaching people who were essentially me in the military a couple of years earlier, I could remember what I wanted to learn and how I best learned. Ended up being a pretty good instructor. And in fact, that was my first two jobs in Silicon Valley. It was another case. It was a different kind of fog of war that you were thrown into. Well, it was also... You know, there were two lessons there was one is, uh, you know, what I remind people is the difference between an entrepreneur and a normal person is for an entrepreneur. No is just the beginning of a conversation. You know, if you were like, no, you don't have a job. Most people would not and say, oh, my God, I need to find a homeless shelter. I wasn't in, in my case. I wasn't leaving that room until I could convince them that, yes, I did. And, and then two is, is that, you know, the other one is. If you're not capable of assimilating a lot of diverse information in a chaotic situation, you should not be a co-founder of a startup, at least early on in your career. When you develop that skill, when you've learned how to work in them or whatever, then that's fine. But in fact, here was a lesson of being thrown into chaos with no support, no whatever. But I had the ability to kind of just rise to the occasion, not because I was smart, because I had already had been in this environment and, and knew what it took to operate quickly on just insufficient information and did well enough to you know get promoted in that company early on. So how and when did you move into trying your hand at launching your own startup? Well, I'm like some of my students today who become CEOs in their 20s, and it is now a testament to how much information there is in Silicon Valley about 
innovation entrepreneurship, I basically became a, a co-founder CEO via apprenticeship. I mean, it took me, you know, I, I would say it was startup six or seven before I was a serious player and maybe startup five and in co-founding and then founding a company. You know, you, you have to understand is that when I was an entrepreneur, the only way you got information on how to start companies and how to run them was via coffee with other people if you were lucky enough to be in an entrepreneurial cluster. You were actually limited by your coffee bandwidth about how much information you could get in keeping in the coffee theme today. Where today in a half hour, literally in a half hour, you could read more than all of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs knew in the 1970s. And in fact, your biggest problem today is how to kind of figure out which one of these 180 degrees pieces of advice to follow, not that there's insufficient advice. So the answer was, uh, uh, answer your question, I think it took me about five startups before I became, quote, a player. But I was just learning from masters. I stumbled into something, again, I didn't understand it and was blessed by it. But I had a series of mentors that shaped my entire life. And and that's what I, another heuristic I, I teach my students, if you're lucky enough to find people who pay attention to you and your career, you know, latch on to them. But you should understand it's a two-way street. That is the reason, again, only in hindsight, I was getting mentored wasn't because they liked me, but because I was giving unintentionally as, as much as I was getting. I was seeing new things that they hadn't seen. And in exchange, they were giving me their years of patent recognition and for the best of them the wisdom they've extracted from those patterns you know some of them are unintentional mentors pauline Ocker, alan michaels and some of them were, were conscious mentors rob ben arden gordon bell my partner ben wegbright who who just taught me things that i never would have seen or would have taken me another decade so so i guess the sorry to ramble but best insights i think i have for your listeners if you find people giving you coaching advice, pay attention and make sure you're giving as good as you're getting. I think that's such an incredibly important point. Could you give us an example, Steve, of a time when you were giving value, maybe without realizing it, to one of those who became a mentor? Part of mentorship is, is also where you are in your career. You know, in my early 20s, I, people were probably trying to mentor me. I, I, I don't think I was ready for it. Probably my late 20s, early 30s to maybe my early 40s, there's a sweet spot where you're capable of listening and, and changing. And then, by the way, the sad news is eventually you become the mentor and you don't realize that. <laughs> and it's bittersweet because you've now known more than your people who were teaching you. You're, you're now on their level or at least in a different place. But there was a decade or so, I'll say both uh, Gordon Bell and Ben Wagbright, two people in the computer industry who were Gordon was one of the early uh, architects of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, famous computer company in the 70s and 60s, 70s, 80s. And, you know, he taught me how to think and what to think about. And Ben Webright, who I did a four companies with, first as my boss's boss, then my boss, then my peer, then my co-founder, you know, taught me how to think analytically. And at the same time, you know, my analogy of Ben, for example, is Ben would teach you how to drive on the road. And I would teach him how to drive off-road, meaning I would I would be thinking about things he'd never thought of. Well, he was thinking, teaching me how to just rifle shot through analytics. And it was a great, it was a great set of team. Something else that you have written about, Steve, is that 
for those of our young listeners on the job who may be getting feedback from their supervisors, that they shouldn't see that as distractions that could be ignored because to do otherwise can limit your career. Why do you say that? So, you know, I've, I've been the, I've been in all the, the positions here. I've been the um, person getting advice and ignoring it. I've been the person getting advice and taking it. I've been the person getting advice uh, giving advice and being ignored. <laughs> I've been the person, you know, giving advice and being listened to. Here's what's going on is, is if you're young and getting advice, you know, the, from certainly from people who are in your kind of management chain, at first it might just seem like blah, 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 blah. Yeah, let me get back to work. You should like stop if you're listening to this and write down in big capital letters that's a career limiting moment. Meaning if someone who you report to is trying to tell you something, you need to stop what you're doing and write it down and then look at it and say, did I understand what they said? And if not, ask them, ask them, I don't understand or gee, what did you mean? Or how can I deliver this? Because they're either trying to give you advice or direction you need to pay attention to. And over time, if you do that, they will understand that you're both responsive and responsible. But if you start ignoring them, the first time they'll go, well, maybe you didn't get it. The second time they'll go, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the third time they'll go, I'm done with this person. And, and that I'm done might mean if they're your boss, you're either your career is over or you're going to be out of a job. And what's worse, if they were trying to mentor you, you just fired a mentor. It's a big idea. If someone was trying to give you advice as a coach or a mentor and you just basically shut them down or ignore them, that relationship is gone. It's okay to say, I don't understand, but it's not okay to kind of just blow it off. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. A lot of sense. And I can say just personally, certainly during my first profession, I'm on my fourth now, but my first profession is a journalist and I did that for 20 years. I can tell you in hindsight, Steve, my insecurity held me back from asking people who knew more than I did, who had the wisdom that I didn't have and the insights to be a mentor to help me because I was afraid. And this was like, you know, it's kind of like an open joke out there. I was afraid if I asked for help, it would be like a red flag that I didn't know what the heck I was doing, which I didn't really, you know, I was learning it on the job. So in hindsight, I would say, please, you're not fooling anyone, especially when you're in the early years of your career. No one expects you to know everything. Find those wise people who can share their experiences with you. Yep. I just think raising your hand and asking, can you explain this again? Especially if you're in a room full of people, you're going to be surprised that the rest of the room didn't get it either. But but they were afraid to, to ask. And I find that in a classroom all the time, but it, it's true in a work situation. As I taught that to my kids. Just, you know, stop in the middle because it only gets worse. That is, if, if in fact, you know, they then tell you to do something based on the first thing they tell you you didn't understand, now you're really in a hole because you should have asked like a week ago and they thought you understood. It happens all the time. And as you said, particularly when you're young and think you're supposed to know everything, when in fact, most people will recognize 
you actually don't know anything before we gave you the job anyway. That's exactly right. So I would love for you to share with our listeners, Steve, what your big takeaways were, the pattern recognition that you saw that went into developing what has come to be known as the Lean Startup Methodology. Well, you know, Lean Startup is is just a way to to recognize that as passionate as founders might be, that as founders of startups on day one about building new companies and new technologies, et cetera, that all they have is a series of untested hypotheses, which is a very fancy word for saying is all you're doing is guessing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and not that it's wrong. It's just that it's an inefficient process. And let me go back to say what happened is, and for me, this was a, a set of painful lessons is one of the companies I mentioned where I had a kind of a unintentional mentor was a CEO named Alan Michaels, who was fairly uh, famed and feared. And uh, we were in the middle of a new startup, literally must have been 15 or 20 people. I'm now the VP of marketing, thinking I'm God's gift to marketing. Around the room, we're planning the features of the new product are some really senior people, senior engineers anyway, who built impressive machines in the past. And we're discussing what kind of features the machine should have. And it's a technical discussion, but I'm impressed with myself sitting there that I could actually understand the conversation. And thinking that I hadn't heard the sound of my own voice, that, gee, everybody else should hear it. And I burst in with some opinion about we ought to have feature X, Y, and Z. And Alan turned to me and uh, my friend, John Rubenstein, who later went off to be head of hardware engineering at Apple, still remembers that he was shaking his head to me that said, no, no, don't, don't go here. And Alan said, can you repeat what you just said? And I went, blah, 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 blah. And Alan said, really, is that what you think? And I still remember the moment the world changed. It changed it for everybody here because at the top of his lungs, like a Marine Corps drill instructor, he put his face about three inches from mine and started screaming, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. There's a room full of people who spent their entire careers figuring out these features. And you're just, you know, talking out of, again, some part of your body that you're embarrassing yourself in the profession of marketing. Get the hell out of my building. And I thought I had just been fired. And more importantly, in front of people I really respected, I felt so small I could have walked out underneath that door with it closed. And and again, my friend John said my face went white. I thought I had just been fired at the startup I just joined with some great people. And then he said, and take the VP of sales with you. Don't come back until you find out what customers really want. Well, I have to tell you, it was the most extreme two by four you could ever get by the side of your head. And today, probably completely illegal and would have been worthy of a good lawsuit, but changed my career and, in fact, was the impetus for the lean startup because there was an example of, you know, the professional marketing, which goes on a lot, thinking that all that matters in a room is your opinion. What actually mattered was what people wanted and needed outside the building. And we spent months scouring the country, figuring out what was the right, what we now call product market fit, what features would get us the most customers. And came back and actually became an incredibly powerful influence on the company and the system we were building. And later on, when I got to do a couple more startups after that, I got to practice that. One of the places where I failed doing that was my next to last company, where I had learned all this stuff. And then I kind of forgotten it because I kind of got wrapped up in the hype of being a hot startup. I was on the cover of something called Wired Magazine. And uh, 90 days later, 
I realized that the company was going to go out of business. And so I had to call my mother and tell her that, gee, mom, I, I lost $35 million. And because my mother was a Russian immigrant, English still wasn't her first language. And she had to pause for a bit and then said, where'd you put it? She <laughs> <I> said, no, <laughs> I, did, I didn't misplace it. It's gone. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, like we can't even change our name. It's blank. The country we came from is gone and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, no, the reason I'm calling you is the people who gave me the, the money just gave me another $12 million to do my next startup. And in my next startup, I remembered all those lessons I had put together. It was a startup called Epiphany and basically returned a billion dollars each to my two investors. And it was after that startup that I sat down, now retired, and started writing, of all things, my memoirs of all the lessons learned from that day that I got yelled at to the day. I learned the lessons to the day I forgot it and realized, big idea, there was a pattern here of not only my behavior, but by this time I had done eight startups. I was sitting on private boards. I was sitting on a couple of public boards and I was seeing a repeatable pattern. And that pattern was, is that companies and startups that started and executed, like all they needed to do was execute a plan, tended to fail or at least spend a lot of time figuring out what the right plan was. And startups that did something different, that was actually getting out of the building and, and getting as close to the customer as possible early on, had a higher chance of success. And, and I developed a couple of rules, very simple ones, which said you know, that we had been operating like startups were smaller versions of large companies. And in fact, so that's how Silicon Valley investors and venture capitalists implicitly told their entrepreneurs in the in the last part of the 20th century and it turns out that was fundamentally incorrect startups are not smaller versions of large companies large companies do something called execution of a known business model which is a fancy word for saying they know who their customers are and they know their distribution channel they know their competitors there's a series of knowns but in a startup you might know something about your technology but almost everything else about your business is a series of unknowns. And all those unknowns can't be pre-computed inside the building. That, though, that's what we tended to do. And so the other rule or heuristic about this lean startup method said there are no facts inside the building, so get the hell outside. And what you were getting outside for was finding this thing called product market fit. That's a long soliloquy to answer your question very short question. No, it's exactly what I was hoping you would share. Thank you. Thank you so much. Listening to you repeat that, Steve, and frankly, listening to your personal story. I'm guessing you've heard this before, but I want to share with you what I see as being another pattern that perhaps could be useful to our listeners. And I think it relates to the lean startup methodology in that if young people do what you did, which is to get outside their comfort zone, to try out different jobs in various companies or various fields, to help them figure out kind of quickly what they like and maybe even what they're passionate about. And by the way, that's probably going to continue to evolve as they get older. That's what you did. Before you got to Silicon Valley, even, you kept innovating and figuring it out until you found the right fit. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would say yes to all and then kind of maybe double down a bit about what I've learned about entrepreneurs and founders. 
for those of your listeners who are thinking about entrepreneurship as a career, that's a mistake. Because certainly being a founder or co-founder, or even joining an early stage company, it's a it's the world's worst job, period. End of discussion. It's a shitty job. But it's the world's best calling. And I want to make that distinction between a job and a calling. An accountant is a job. An artist is a calling. And there are categories in life of things that are jobs, that have job descriptions, pay well, you have training for you know, things are colored within those lines, etc. But there are other things that are callings that you don't know what your next painting is or your, your next sculpture or your next piece of music you're going to write or display you're going to write. And that's where entrepreneurship fits. And, and so the closest thing to being a founder and early employee is an artist, not an accountant. And so you ought to understand where you're most comfortable with. And it doesn't mean you have to choose for life, but I would understand those distinctions and figure out that you might want to apprentice in one or another to figure out where are you most happy. Does that help? Yes. And I've also read you say that most people seek to minimize uncertainty and risk, which are obviously go hand in glove in an early stage startup. And they take a job with a defined career path, whether it be as a lawyer or a teacher, and certainly not to diss either profession. Those are called normal people. Those are called normal people, exactly. But it is not necessarily the right path for people who have that pull, what you've described as maybe a calling. Yes. And, and, and I think if we categorize them between normal people with normal jobs, with they, they work to live versus artists who live to work. And I will put entrepreneurs in that category. And that was, by the way, a mistake of entrepreneurial education for decades is thinking we were simply, you know, teaching another trade. And entrepreneur is not a trade. It's a craft. It's a craft like art, at least if you're a founder or an early employee. You know, later on, it becomes a reputable company. And then there are job specs and job positions, et cetera. What I'm talking about is if you're in the early stage, the first 5, 10, 15 people, there is nothing predictable and nothing comfortable. And by the way, it's fun, but it's fun, you know, like jumping out of the plane without a parachute and figuring you're going to pick one up on the way down. That kind of fun. And if that's exciting, then that's the place for you. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then 99% of the rest of the world is happy having a job. And there's no shame in that. It's just that if you want something different, understand who you are first. Yes. And you've also said, follow your curiosity and your intuition and trust that the dots in your career will connect. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, you know, uh, I said that and I realized I ended up almost paraphrasing Steve Jobs. It's that same observation is that, you know, you could plan a career path for careers, doctor, lawyer, whatever, you know, you go to, you want to be a doctor, go to med school, you know, have to become a resident, et cetera, et cetera. It's a path. Want to become a lawyer, you know, go to law school, undergrad, law school, pass the bar, eventually become a partner, et cetera. But there is no path for founders. You know, most of the path for most founders are going to be start company. It fails. <laughs> start other company. It fails. You lose your house. Start company, get divorced. I mean, or start company, become Facebook at, at 20. I mean, there is no path here. There's a trite phrase that it's about the journey becomes the reward, another Apple thing. 
but it really is. It's why people paint. It's because why people write music. It's different than a career. And if you don't get enjoyment out of that journey, then it's the wrong place for you. And I, I don't mean every job in a what was a startup, but I just mean those early days. If you don't want to be part of a band forming, writing music, you know, then you're never going to be the Beatles. You might be playing their records someday, or but it's very different. Yeah, I, I would say I would. I'm just going to posit something and let me know what you think. I actually, in my own life, have followed my curiosity and my intuition, and then other things, unexpected things like not having my contract renewed by CNN when I was 43 years old came up, <laughs> and then I <laughs> I pivoted. You're that CNN. You're going to regret this forever. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that. But they did me a huge favor at the time. It was like, you know, having your startup fail. It's a shock and it feels awful. It's a death. I decided to reinvent myself, went into the field of public relations. I let my ego get in the way, Steve, and insisted that I have a senior vice president title in a field that they knew I knew nothing about and I had never managed people. Guess what? Big surprise. A year and nine months into it, they fired me. Another, you know, shock, death, all of that, moved into the nonprofit world, ended up, again, following my curiosity, my intuition. And here I am in my mid-50s, and I'm trying to build, in effect, a social enterprise. I've never been an entrepreneur, but I have always been entrepreneurial. And I do think, in hindsight, the dots in my career are connecting as well. And I think, you know, if you think about it, I've always said you stick out your thumb and see where life takes you. And sometimes you get thrown out of the car. So you have to stick out your thumb. (laughs) And sometimes you're just like the life on the road is something that you were born with. In either case, life is pretty interesting. I think if you're willing to take some risks and and have some skills and and, you know, I always to me, the test actually, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. I don't think I ever shared this with anybody. So, I, you know, when I left the military, I uh, went back to school and lived with my girlfriend in a basement apartment in, our, in Ann Arbor that if it was a, a 200 square feet, it was probably probably less than that. And my test my whole career was, if I failed, can I go back to that? Because it was really hard to starve to death in the United States. I mean, and there are probably some corner cases where that's true, but I, it was, could I always go back? to the beginning. And even today, yeah, I could do that. And I could start over. And if you're not willing to say that or not willing to risk that, then sticking out your thumb is pretty risky. But if you can, it's one heck of a journey. And I, I look back and I think, what a great ride. I mean, you know, I learned a lot. I I think I gave a lot. I think I, I made some great friends and created some great products. And but more importantly, I can't look back and say coulda, shoulda, woulda. And that's not what I could say about a lot of people. A lot of folks, you know, when they get to the end of the career, will tell you, could have done this, should have done this, would have done this, whatever. That's not what you want to do. That's what you want to say is, it was a heck of a ride. Steve, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the time for coffee community. You have an infinite amount of wisdom and generosity of spirit and just can't thank you enough for sharing all of that with me and the T4C community. 
great. It was exciting, and you asked some great questions, and I hope your listeners learned a thing or two. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.